don't always have to code so hard. In fact, sometimes that's not right to do. Sometimes you've got to take your time. Fucking user, test your shit too. Sometimes you've got to peer review. Sometimes you've got to pair too. Sometimes you've got to say, hey, in your commit did you get it out for me that's fucking teamwork what's your ide that's cool with me vin's not my favorite but i'll use it for you production's down for me i'm not gonna fix it but i'll log a bug and arsenal everybody to act the actual episode seven of uh, import this the last episode was actually episode six and i said seven so you get a double dose and uh unfortunately our co-host alex is uh un- unavailable yet again which is such a strange coincidence because it seems to be a trend but uh it just so happens this week that he's been really involved with Something, I, I'm not really familiar with it, but it's something called the election, and it has something to do with the president, and so I'm sure it's, you know, very, you know, it's he's of utmost importance to something they keep referring to as the cyber, uh, and something to do with security, so... Uh, as soon as that gets all wrapped up, I'm sure he will return to us in podcast form. Uh, so today filling in for him is the uh, wonderful Kate Heddleston. Hi, Kate. Hi. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Yeah? Yeah. Well, I'm excited to co-host with you today. Yes, thank you for filling in. I, I really hope Alex recovers from all these strange things soon. It's, yeah, I think I think he's trying to add HTTPS to every single website in the world right now. So I'm sure he'll be back soon. It's one step at a time, one website at a time. <laughs> so uh, I have an announcement to make, and it is that I am starting a new project, um, and it's still in the, it's past the discovery phase, and it's in the implementation phase, so it might actually happen. And I have three or four people working on it. Uh, I'm realizing that I don't have to do every open source project all by myself until they're done uh, and then get other people involved. So it'll be fun. It's called saythanks.io, uh, the Say Thanks project. And the idea is that, um, you know how you have like those, you have like buttons on repos and on Git, on GitHub projects that are like donate or uh, how many downloads they have or if they have tests that are passing or failing. I want to have something similar to that that is 
that enables people who use the library or the documentation or whatever it is that you built to just send a simple note of thank you. And I think that that will be really cool. Awesome. That's really fun. Yeah, I think it'll be great because I get emails, you know, from people and they say thanks. And I um, I have like a folder in Gmail for those and in Evernote where I keep them. And then, you know, once every six months, it's really nice to just go back and look at them and remind yourself, you know, that you're impacting people's lives. And that means more to me than monetary donations and stuff like that. So the idea, the, the, the hook of the project is uh, spreading thankfulness and open source. So I think that's something that uh, I'm trying to cultivate is just kind of like, you know, having more human to human interaction with the projects that you're using and say thank you. And yeah, not that anyone deserves thanks, but they do. You know, <laughs> I, I don't think there's a lack of gratitude, um, but it's it's nice when it's easy to say thank you. That way you can or someone might not have thought to even gone out of their way to do that before. So I think it'll be fun once it comes to fruition. Yeah. Well, it's the perfect time of year for that. It is, because there's just so much love in the air with the selection <laughs> thing. It, uh, everywhere I, I go, was, everyone's just agreeing on everything. <laughs> I was thinking Thanksgiving coming up. Oh, oh, that's funny. Although the holidays are probably going to be difficult for some families because of the election. Uh, we don't really talk about that stuff in that's my family. Fair. I think, at least I think, I don't know, I guess we'll find out. This is a more polarizing election than I've experienced, uh, I think, in my lifetime, in my family, at least, within my family. So uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah, same same here. I think that the families that talk are probably ones who don't talk about politics at this point. <laughs> no divorces are, are being filed yet. Um, so, well, fun so fact... Did you oh. know that apparently it is um, rarer for people to marry across party lines than it is for them to marry across race or socioeconomic lines? I read that like a couple years ago, so I don't know if it's still true. But Wow, I've never heard that, and I totally believe it. Now I'm going to have to go cite that source. <laughs> that's, that's fascinating. Um, so. so, okay, so you are Kate Heddleston. Uh, mm -hmm. You have a, a really cool website. Uh, it's always really resonated with me. Like I haven't, I don't even know if I've actually read many of your posts or any, but <laughs> I just know the, the, the homepage is so cool. Uh, My I'm, I'm stick gonna... figure self-portrait? Yeah, I just love the personality of it. I'm going there I... now. Okay. And it's the yeah. zeros and the ones and like, it's just so cute. And like, I don't know, but it's like, you're really serious and you have, Super and I love- serious. I love like your about page starts with the heading birth, you know, and like, I just love I the personality. I didn't know where to start. I just went from the beginning. <laughs> I've gotten more compliments on my about page than I ever expected. And according to Google Analytics, it's one of the most read parts of my website. It's up there with like some of my top blog posts, my about page. It's really well done. And you have great typography. And did you do that all yourself? I did. I did a bunch of research on typography and line width and all of these different things for how to read more easily, basically on online websites. I don't know as I could sum it all up, but it's kind of fun to go exploring typography and colors and things like that. It's tons of time, though. A huge amount I'm, of respect for designers. See, I'm really into that stuff, but I use my intuition. Um, and it, I would have ended up with something similar to this. Right now I'm using Squarespace and they don't give me much flexibility. Mm -hmm. uh, I just wanted something that I didn't have to maintain anymore. But when I was writing my own themes, 
um, I had a I had a similar look in my ty- in my um, body face that you do mm-hmm. with the with the spacing, and it's a lot of those really small, uh, you know, line width or line height tweaks that make a huge difference. Mm-hmm. And you can really tell when someone's put thought into that. Yeah, well, my style is to basically go steal research from people who have already figured things out, and then I go from there. So I went, and I think I, I read a bunch of blog posts on the ideal line width to font size, like to line spacing, and I basically oh, okay. just started from there. Because people have written a lot of blog posts about that. Um, I've noticed on my Kindle, I started reading on the Kindle recently because I got the Oasis, and it's I love it. Having a nice mm-hmm. device like encourages me to want to use it and read. Uh and so I got that and I set it up so it was like really beautiful type- typographically the way mm-hmm. that like I, I would print it. And um, and I was reading and reading and reading that way. And then I looked over at my my wife's Kindle when she was reading one day and she had, you know, like way more spacing between lines. And I was like, I, so I just tried it and it I can read easier that way. So it was it was really cool to just like, the visual presentation sometimes is less important than the uh, readability presentation. Yeah, and that's what a lot of the research is on, is how to make, basically how to make things readable. Because if you have really, really mm-hmm. long wide lines, then it can be hard for people, it, it's really hard for your eyes to move that far. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and so if you do have long lines, if you have more space, then it's easier to go to the left after, you know, do the carriage return, basically, mm-hmm. mentally. But if they're close together in a nice, beautiful way that I would like to see it like printed then or on a website, then uh, it's a little harder to read. So mm-hmm. so now I'm having less, you know, I'm doing more turn pages and I find myself reading faster. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of it's kind of cool. And I'm more engaged uh, and the turn and ha- having the turn page be more often also makes me more engaged, too, because I, I feel like I'm completing something when I'm spending too much time on one page. I'm like getting bored. Mm-hmm. Which is a, a problem that I generally have in life. <laughs> getting bored, getting bored and impatient. Yeah. Yeah, just I need constant contact switches basically because of the internet. I think. Yeah. Well, and that's how I ended up with illustrations in my blog posts. What I found is that, so I, I have like um I wrote my own admin portal, of course, my own content management system because this blog was an experiment and just yeah. setting up a whole bunch of things for myself. And so when I start, I have. I have all of this text and I basically just have big blocks of text and I wrote it and care hugely about what I wrote. And even I'm like, I can't read this. This is just a wall of text, which is daunting. And so it's broken into sections with titles and then illustrations. And Uh, it's rarely more than than two paragraphs between another heading and another image. And it makes a huge difference in terms of readability. It's just like instead of it being this horrible wall of text and ideas that are really abstract, you like get these fun things in between that help your brain reset. And so I illustrate all my blog posts mostly just because I think otherwise, otherwise you just I don't know they're boring. It's just too much text. Do you want any feedback on your on your uh, about page? Sure. I was reading. I'm the farthest kid to the right, and for some reason I thought that meant that you were on the far left. I don't know why. Uh, I had to think about it. So if it said I'm the farthest kid on the right, then I would have immediately known. That's that might just be me though. Oh yeah, I I probably can clarify that. <laughs> or just circle. Well, whenever whenever someone's doing one of those like you know location 
geometry tricks with with language you have to like really everyone does it a little differently so you have to really think about it mm -hmm. you know like first from the right like i don't know if that means it's or second from the right that's the tricky one mm -hmm. is because people you don't know if that means it's it's uh you know the index is minus one or minus two mm -hmm. or, you, you, or you don't know if they're using zero based indexing or one based indexing yeah yeah because yeah. most of the world doesn't use zero based indexing but if you say second from the right, it, I intuitively think that they mean the f like right before the last one, and that's not two before the last one, because I think that's what a lot of people in certain ge geographic areas say. Because hmm. it's just a saying, second yeah. from the right. Yeah, you know. Same. But then you're like, do you actually mean like to one, right, two, three? Right. Yeah, exactly. It's tricky. I love language in general. I think you, it seems like you have an affinity for communication in general, and that's what people kind of know you. I, I didn't get to ask the question yet, I hmm. keep trying to get to, which is how do people know you? Oh, um, well, I think many people don't know me. Um, some people know me because I wrote some blog posts on diversity <laughs> in tech, although from the perspective of kind of people management and getting at the core underlying problems. I'd say I write very analytically. And then I also give technical talks. I've talked about um, infrastructure and DevOps over the years. And then I gave one talk, how our engineering environments are killing diversity and how we can fix it. Um, yeah, that, and those are pretty big topics right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but my, my perspective is slightly different. It's um, the idea is to focus on the environment. So environments are these really powerful influencers. And the example that I like to use is if you're in a theater watching a performance or watching someone speak, there's a whole um, set of things that the environment tells you about how you should behave that are incredibly powerful, right? So, you know, you have a yes. stage where someone is raised, which gives them kind of the power to speak. Um, and because of yeah. where the audience is and where the stage is, they know where to speak to and the audience knows which direction to face. And you've got all these, all of these ah. chairs and rows. And if the lights dim, you know, to be quiet, like there's a whole bunch of really strong social, powerful social cues. cues. Um, and we have those in engineering cultures. And a lot of times when yes. we talk about diversity and inclusivity, we look a lot at the individual narrative. Where it's like, well, now, do you, sexism do you focus more and racism on... come from one person being sexist or racist towards another person, as opposed to what happens a lot of times, which is that um, an environment is set up to reward or support certain types of behavior that could be biased. So it can be a whole bunch of little tiny actions that add up to, to bias existing in the workplace. Um, yeah, so, so you kind of focus more on when you say some of those environmental oh, factors, which are things like a lack of process. Um, you know, if you criticize some groups more than others and don't realize it, so it's kind of all these things that people might do in aggregate that they don't realize that can actually. So you kind of fo do you focus mostly when you say engineering cultures? Do you focus? I think your writing focuses on the workplace. Right. Specifically, the workplace. Specifically, the concept. But do, of the do you think that it applies to? Because when I think of, I kind of ignore the workplace culture personally because I'm kind of I'm not alienated in my company at all, but I'm very isolated, like like self insulated. Mm -hmm. Like I work on what I work on, and I don't have to, you know. There's culture stuff, but it's not. I don't like actively collaborate with a ton of people to mm -hmm. do my job. Uh, I mean, I do, but. It's it's complicated. Anyway, um, 
So for me, when I hear that phrase, engineering culture, I think of the open source or like the Python ecosystem that you see on like Twitter and on IRC mm-hmm. and at, at PyCon and stuff like that. Is that. Do you think that those, like your writings and stuff like that apply to that? Or you do you mostly focus on workplace stuff? Um, I mostly focus on workplace-based things, although I think that it, it extends to other spaces. It's the idea, it's, it's where people work together in some ways. So I think it applies to open source. Um, I would say actually like your workplace culture extends to you in terms of how much you're compensated, how you're promoted, how you understand, how you interact with other people, um, how much power you have compared to others. I mean, power constructs, yeah. compensation constructs, your understanding of how you can move within the organization. Those are all, that's all part of the culture. Um, and so while you might not collaborate day to day with people, those, those things probably do actually have a, a fairly big impact on you. Oh, they definitely do. And they're the reasons, you know, they're the things that I have to evaluate if I'm like, do I want to keep working for this company? Because mm-hmm. I've been, I just got my five year, uh, I'll show you actually, <laughs> I got my, I got my five year surfboard from Salesforce for working at Heroku. And uh, that's a really long time. I don't think I've worked anywhere that long. Because um, I'm like, I'm 28. And, uh, you know, that's like, so I, so I just have like a mild anxiety. I have in the past have an anxiety of like, am I supposed to leave now because I've been here so long? Mm-hmm. And it took me it took me a long time to realize that it's okay to be comfortable somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, like if, if at least at this stage in my life, I want I don't necessarily want to be constantly, um, like, I don't have to be constantly struggling uphill to like advance myself. Like it's okay to plateau intentionally mm-hmm. if that makes sense yeah definitely like i don't i don't want any more upward mobility at the moment i'm very you know what i'm talking about like it's really important to evaluate those things in your career and uh, if anyone is listening i assume that you listen to other podcasts there's a really great podcast that uh, i was on a long time ago um called developer t uh t-e-a uh and this guy i can't remember his name off the top of my head but he does great little podcasts on basically career path development for software developers at all stages. Uh, and he talks about these topics and it's really cool. And it like the importance of having um, other things in your life as other than programming, like that's really important for programmers to remember um, <laughs> because often programmers, that's their only hobby and then they get burnt out. Uh, and so I focus on music and photography and other stuff and uh, anyway, I highly recommend that podcast to anyone who's listening and is interested in those topics. And I think it's really in line with kind of the message that, the, not the message that Kate has, but the, um, the, just a general topic area of it's like, you know, we often talk about engineering and we talk about technical problems and we talk about how those things affect us, but we often don't talk about, you know, l- more like lifestyle oriented things like how does working for this company affect my lifestyle or how does programming affect my lifestyle and that's kind of that should be one of the main reasons you're if you're like employed to work for a company that that's usually the main goal of that is to support your lifestyle for me at least um do you have any thoughts on that kate like motivations like core (laughs) motivations i think we should be aware of why we're doing things right yeah there's like um there's a set of motivations that people have and a lot of the personality tests try to get at these and um for me i'm an, I'm an uh, infp 
Yeah, I don't even know. I don't know the Myers-Briggs one. There's another one that's like, that defines personality types by primarily what motivates you. Mine, oh. one of my strong motivators is um, like having a meaningful impact on the world or the world around me. So, yeah. so like, I look for that at, at companies. Um, yeah, but like people talking about their own, their own goals, their own motivations and their own desires. I think that's a hugely important topic. And then, you know, talking about companies and how we construct basically a world where people can theoretically work towards their goals. Um, and the idea is, is to inspect those companies and those environments to make sure that there isn't bias and how people are able to move through the company and how they're able to operate in that environment. Um, so you've given talks at, I know you gave at least one talk at PyCon on this subject um, and, and many other conferences that are PyCon related. Mm-hmm. Um, I Where was I going with this? <laughs> uh, I don't remember. You've done that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, oh, but you're also a startup founder. Uh, yes. So is your, and I whenever I think of like startup founders in like the Valley, I always have this mentality of like, company flipping and like trying to hustle to the top and stuff like that. And what, what, what is your motivation? Is that still your motivation is having an impact on the, on a positive impact on the world around you when you decided to, to stop working for other people and start working for yourself like that? Cause that's a big decision to make as a developer. Yeah, it's a huge decision. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a really big motivator for me. And the, the company that I have is to, is to make an impact on, on our customers and, on the, the teams that purchase our product. Uh, Do you want to say what it is or what it does? Sure. I mean, it, it's it's a deployments platform for service-oriented infrastructure. And the idea, the, the kind of overarching thing that motivates me is this idea of if we can make your infrastructure less fragile, we can make your team less fragile. Uh, and the reason that I yeah. built it is I did a, a bunch of consulting work after I wrote these articles. I was brought into a, a whole bunch of tech companies to help improve developer productivity um, retention and inclusivity. And one of the biggest pain points for most companies is how software is actually deployed. And because it's so fragile, it can be this power land grab. Um, a lot of engineering cultures are hugely dependent on whether or not their deployment and ops teams are staffed by people who are nice. So there's a lot of, like, if you ask engineers this question, like, can you name your least favorite engineer ever? Um, Oh, it's just based on niceness. Yeah, like the, the person who was the worst to work with, who made you feel the worst to work with. Um, yeah. And a lot of times those people are in ops and site reliability, not because they're bad, not because bad people are there, but because like if you have a really fragile system and you have some people whose job it is to defend that system and some people whose job it is to change that system, you basically set up a culture that is antagonistic, Right. Um, yeah, where and that's why that's why like DevOps became popular, right? Is because it kind of like closes that feedback loop and makes people responsible for their own stuff. Mm-hmm. It's still, it makes it much shorter, um, but there's still kind of this us versus them mentality. There's a lot of withholding of power because if you build really complicated developer operations scripts, there's only a few people who can understand and maintain them. So there's usually very little transparency. Um, it means or, that, or maybe if you're in a large organization, only each team knows how to maintain their own stuff, and they're all kind of like teams fighting with each other. Yeah, so teams that can can ship and maintain their own infrastructure are much more effective and autonomous. That's essentially the culture Netflix built. So Netflix—that's what Heroku does as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So any 
Um, and this is what most companies try to do. So they have an entire team of people who build a platform that allows everyone else to deploy their code. I um, mean, those, yes. those teams cost a lot of money and you can only do that at a certain size. Um, so almost every major company has their own in-house deployments platform. I believe ours is called Foundation. Uh, I'm pretty sure. I'm not sure if that's foundation of of the Heroku platform or of our internal platform. There's two teams. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that yeah, that's the internal one for uh, the internal. Like if you're deploying an internal part of Heroku, mm-hmm. uh, and often a part of Heroku will run on Heroku itself, but you need parts that are underneath that, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's, I think that's the foundation team, and that's a good term for that. Is you know because it's kind of like the foundation that we build things upon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they manage things like the uh, if you need a new SSH bucket, for example, mm-hmm. for like if I need an SSH bucket, sorry, an SSH bucket, uh, an S3 bucket um, for my Python s- stuff, you know, mm-hmm. I want it to be like productionized in, in our system and build properly and in the right, have the right permissions and all that stuff. That's not my job. Mm-hmm. My job is to ask the foundation team to provide me with an S3 bucket, and then they can figure out how it fits into our accounts and they provision it for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And that seems to be a pretty good system. Yeah, and a lot of companies have that system um, because that's what they found works, basically. Um, There's a lot of, as companies are small and and grow, though, that's a really, really painful process. And so anyways, my motivation is, is this idea, if you can make deployments less fragile, maybe you can make teams less fragile because a lot of, at least for a lot of the women or um, less well-represented groups that I know, those really bad interactions with a DevOps engineer can be, they can be really damaging. So for example, one of the stories I have is of the release engineer at a very famous big company now. And he, um, the rule was that if you were deploying your code, you had to be in the IRC channel. So if, if your code was going out, you had to be in the IRC channel. And if you okay. weren't in the IRC channel when your code was going out, this DevOps engineer would come and find you no matter where you were in the office and scream at you in front of everyone. Oh, that's ho- that's not appropriate. I would think so, but it's um, surprisingly not that uncommon. Um, and so, so if you think about, I mean, the idea is it's inappropriate, so you would ideally avoid that in all costs. But there should be a better way to approach that. I think so. Um, the number of, of horror stories we have, though, is pretty high. But you can imagine, like, if you are a young woman who has no friends on the engineering team and feels very alone because you're one of the only ones of your kind, um, that's a very different experience of being yelled at because you don't actually have anyone to go and support you afterwards and say, mm. like, oh, hey, like, he's just an asshole and don't worry about it. Whereas if you have a lot of friends and you're part of the existing culture, um, you know, like those types of things are less damaging to you. And so, I don't know, it's one of my ways of, of trying to build something that can actually make teams operate more effectively from the human side and not just from the technology side. So that is my overarching awesome. motivation. So so it's for humans, like, for like humans. my software. Yeah, deployments for humans. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, uh, yeah, because I will say so this that, about uh, starting a company. I wouldn't recommend doing it for money. So I know people get this idea that you flip companies, but um, most people don't end up making a material amount of money. Like if I were to go work at a big company like Google with the salaries or the stock, um, I'd probably make more over five years than I would doing a startup. Yeah, but there's always that chance that you you know you get bought out or something and you're successful. But to you, success it sounds like is not measured 
purely in that is measured in in impactfulness, yeah. right? Yeah, that's how I measure it, is how much can we push the conversation around deployments and how much can we actually make so, an impact. Would you consider that to be like a lifestyle company type of a thing, that mentality, or not? Um... Because like when I I really I was a big huge 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 fan of GitHub when I was uh like uh like a junior turning into a senior engineer mm-hmm. and I met them when they were like eight employees they came out to the East Coast mm-hmm. and I got to meet all of them and I I just loved that company and that vibe of this small company staying small and they were a lifestyle company at the time mm-hmm. and uh, I thought it was kind of tragic as they uh transitioned at the time i thought it was tragic that uh, they transitioned into a product company basically mm-hmm. um it's just what they are now um and they're doing great and they're fantastic and they do what they do they're the facebook of code uh, they're never they're probably never going to be replaced um in terms of you know they own that territory mm-hmm. and they and they do a fucking amazing job at what they do um and i i still love github just as much as they always have but i don't I don't identify with like the employees anymore or the culture of the employees. And that was something that uh, is really interesting just to see. Cause I, I, I really valued, I always wonder in the back of my mind, what happened, what would have happened if GitHub stayed small, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and I don't know, are you at a point where you, I guess it's probably way too early to tell and that you always want to have a fluid approach to things where you, pivot but do you know if like are you going for world domination or are you going for are you going for uh you know me and my me and my bubble of people you know what i mean yeah that's a great question um especially because if you try to fundraise the answer that they want to hear is we're going for the world um, yeah that's the only that's the only right answer if you want to raise venture capital money um, we're still really early and we're still really small. And so we're almost in this kind of hybrid phase where we've raised some money, but not from really big institutions. And we can kind of, we have a lot of optionality in how we grow and build the company. And our goal right now is just to spend time with engineering teams and really spend time with our customers, you know, understanding. And try to like really get insightful and try to really help solve real problems that affect real people. Yeah, exactly. So the, the really fun stuff. Um, and I think that's why companies in their early stages are, are so great. There's this magic at the beginning where you're very, very close to the customer problems um, and where yeah. you really. Um, yeah, that's what GitHub was like then, too, yeah. where it was like, like I could talk like if I knew there was a problem with some part of it, I knew w- which person to talk to at the company mm-hmm. to tell them about it because each person was like the whole, the whole team, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Uh, I just love, I love that. Yeah. I've worked at a couple startups now and I can tell you that, uh, I think it's, I think it's kind of impossible to keep that early magic. Like that's, yeah. that's why there are some people who in terms of personality will always go work for early stage companies because, Oh really? Yeah. Like the big, like there's just something really magical about beginnings in that early phase, and once the company gets Closeness. successful, it moves into more of an execution phase, which, by definition, is yeah. just not as magical. Heroku has transitioned into that phase for sure, mm-hmm. uh, and it's uh, you're right; it's not nearly as magical yeah. at all. Um, but the impactfulness that we're having is greater. But you feel more disconnected from it. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a perfect way of putting it. You have much bigger impact but you are personally less connected to it whereas at the very beginning 
you might have overall a very small amount of impact, but you are incredibly connected to it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I, I thought it'd be interesting to segue. You were talking about, um, you know, women in the office and how that dynamic would be different for a woman. Uh, uh, you know, if someone's screaming at you in the middle of the office, uh, if you're, you know, in a mostly male uh, engineering team. Uh, so you're the first female that we've had on the podcast. So thank you very much. Or at least first publicly um, expressive female that I know of. I, I believe all the other ones have been male, but I don't know. I shouldn't assume. <laughs> That's fair. I identify as female, yes. Yes. As far as I know, everyone who's been on the show identifies as, fe- as male. Um, so thank you for that. And uh, I have another female lined up just by chance. I can't remember who it is, though. So I have to go look at my notes. Um, but so, yeah. So, you know, I want to that we just talk on that topic of this like women in technology if you want to if you want to talk about that because uh, it's kind of a i feel like it's not a hot topic anymore it used to be like really touchy uh or not touchy but like there was a lot of hate going around and i'm all about spreading love um with like the social justice people and on twitter and uh, you know, and conferences have like made major strides in the last five years to help make diversity in general um, more of a priority and make make conferences more accepting and, uh, you know, foster an environment of safeness. And I don't know, just that I thought we could talk about just that general topic of I don't know if there's a name for that encompasses all of that. Do you know? I call it diversity and inclusivity. It's just yeah. the idea that um, that everyone's welcome, and and uh, yeah, I mean it's it's such a, there's such a it's a huge body of work. I've spent my entire adult life in tech. I've spent my entire life as a woman, and I didn't I didn't really understand even a lot of the world that I lived in. I think until I started studying some of these things in college, and then living them in the technology industry. Now, do you mind if I ask? So I, I, I have this perception of you for some reason because of the, your writing and the things that you've seen. I have, a, I have a strange feeling that you haven't had any horrible experiences um, like in your career stage. Like, like, you, like you've been able to get where you are and be notoriety, you know, have notoriety without much... Um, not, not like an overburden of like oppression. Is that is that accurate, or am I completely wrong in that? I mean, there's a reason for you personally. That I have my own startup, because the alternative would be getting not promoted at a tech company. So I, I see. I, mean, I see. Yes, yes, and no. Like I, I tend to be really analytical in my writing, and I don't talk about my personal stories because um, if I want to talk about trends in the environment, you need data and um, personal stories are great for evoking emotion, but um, I just don't tend to write that way. Yeah. Personally, it's, it's just it's just a different style, that's all. And um, <laughs> yeah, I think one of the things that's really interesting is that feminism is not a cohesive movement, right? Like it's this- Yeah, it's kind of means like different things to different people. Well, and even if we all agree on the meaning, which is that men and, men and women and, you know, other groups, you know, there's the whole intersectionality discussion, right? So, like, men and women and people of color should all be treated equally and have equal opportunities. Even if people agree on that concept, 
how and people with disabilities or people who are transgendered you know there's a huge body that that encompasses as well right yeah but people don't necessarily agree on how we get there right so like people express yes, yes, feminism yes. very differently um and everyone is entitled to their feelings and their own expression i disagree with other people who are also feminists and how i think progress can be made but I've also, one of the things... Do you mean social progress? Like, as a culture, how, like, I don't know how to identify. I guess just how, just our culture, let's just use that term, mm -hmm. uh, makes progressive steps towards uh, making improvements. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's the same concept in programming as saying, okay, well, we need to implement this feature. Like, we need to... Oh my gosh, I'm trying to think about something that everyone has to, has to build. Um, we need to add a web the build script. For, yeah, we need to add a. We need to add. We need script. to add a thing that checks. You know, uh, check uh, checks if the website's down and alert. We, alerting. Yeah. Alerting. Yeah. So even if yeah. everyone on your team is like, yeah, I totally agree that we need to do this, you can probably bet that everyone on your team, uh, not everyone on your team, is going to agree about how you should do it, um, and all of the yes. little steps to get there, and what is the absolute best way, and is the best way the most important thing. And it seems as though people kind of seem to self self-select and identify with the implementation and less with the overarching goal. Uh, at right. least that's in, in my experience, you have these like little sub communities of different styles of approaches and they're kind of totally different from each other in philosophy. Yeah. And that's kind of like the same as having like, you have the Ruby community and the Python community and they're very similar languages, but at the same time they have opposite mm -hmm. philosophies and that kind of bubbles out into the whole way the whole community operates. Yeah, exactly. And and feminism is it's it's huge, right? I actually think that every decent person who would like stop and think about it is a feminist, but that doesn't yeah that in no way. But that doesn't it. mean you want to use that word and put it in your profile because that is a polarizing word because it means different things to different people who've had different experiences with people who right. do identify with that word. Well they could <laughs> it with different things. And so, you know, I think one of the things I try to not do now that I am a lot more aware of the world is um, like I like if I want to talk about something I'm going to talk about what I want to talk about the experiences that I've had or I've been in contact with the data that I have the information I have and I try really hard not to police other people's feminism if that makes sense right like everyone has a right to express themselves that being said like I also have the right to disagree um, and you've also so but that's what happens is people police yours right or, or that can happen, sure. I should say. Um, the way that I present, because I am an engineer and I have worked on teams that are so highly analytical, is that I present things as being incredibly analytical. And so people tend to engage on the content with me, which is what I like. Um, mm -hmm. It's one of the reasons that I don't share highly emotional personal stories is because I don't particularly feel like having the community at large engage with me on like highly personal <laughs> emotional things. Yeah, that's like really polarizing. And then there's like, everyone knows the blank story, you know, and it's, uh, mm -hmm. those are, those are, I think those are important to have out there, though. I think they are. And I, I think it's really, really brave when people share their personal stories. And I think it's wonderful. Uh, I am a little bit scared to do it. <laughs> because I, the backlash on the internet is a very real thing. And so do you you do feel like if you were working at a company, you'd have less, you'd be less likely to be promoted because you're a woman? That's statistically true. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I have had, I've had personal experiences around this, as well. Um, mm -hmm. You know, like the thing is, people are always going to figure out what other people are getting paid. And they're always going to figure out what other people's le levels are. Oh yeah, um, yeah. And so, you know, I don't know. 
I hear what you're saying. Yeah, there's like... Uh... I don't know where to go from there. <laughs> There's also shit. Shit happens, right? <laughs> There's also this phenomenon too, where like you go into interview and they, you know, you you get bumped down a level. So mm. so I've been I've been told that I can work my work my way back up to a certain level at their company, and I'm like, why would I do that? That doesn't make any any sense whatsoever. So, but that happens to men too. It happens to lots. I of, mean, it happens to lots of people. Yeah. Um, that's one of the reasons it, that but, I don't talk about personal stories, right? Is because a single point is not data. And so if you want to look at trends, you actually do have to do research studies and get data and kind of talk about those things. Um, yeah, data is very important, it turns out. Yeah, it's very useful. And it turns out there's also a lot of data on gender bias in the workplace. Oh, I was just going to ask you if there is good data out there. Yeah. Um, where, where, what are the, like, what does it look like? Um... Like not not the outcome of it, but like what what is the form of the data? Like what do they record? Uh, it varies. So sometimes they'll do analysis on feed. Like one of the really interesting ones was they did a bunch of analysis on the feedback given to men and women in performance reviews, and they analyzed it for mm. criticism. And interesting. Yeah, I, I have a blog post on it: criticism and ineffective feedback, and it's one of people's favorites. Um, but basically, I'm gonna have to check that out. Women are criticized significantly more than men. And of the criticism that women receive, a significant percentage of it is is personal criticism on the, like on on their person. Did, did, did you say that they were criticized less? No, significantly more than men. Interesting. I would think it would be less. Huh. Fascinating. <laughs> yeah. So data and like so I, that's a lot of what I write about, right? Because as as much as you know. Talking about your own experiences can be hard because it is a single point. And sometimes I experience something and I, I am unable to tell if there's bias because how would I tell I'm a single data point? And bias requires yeah. knowing across a lot. And so that can be one of the hard things about about like being a woman or I'm sure being a person of color and going into these situations is sometimes it's very nuanced and you just don't know if you're being treated differently because you don't know how everyone else is treated. It's just like, I don't know at companies if I'm paid less until I figure out what everyone else is getting paid. Do you feel like that matters to you? Sorry. Not. One sec. Like, okay. Um, go ahead. Do you feel like that matters to you? Like, I feel like if I found out I was being paid less than everyone on my team, like me personally, mm -hmm. that, or if, you know, let's say like, like I was getting paid like 10 K less or something. Uh, I might like have a conversation with my manager about it, but I don't personally think I'd be upset about it. Uh, but that's just my personality, I guess. Yeah. Well, also, so like they've done research on this as well. There's different types of stress, um, and certain types of stress will age you more than others. And one of the types of stress that will age you is if you are systematically undervalued. Mm. So the feeling of being undervalued and being, um, being less than other people as like, a state of being is actually really stressful for so then so you kind of have a responsibility to yourself everyone does to to cultivate a sense of value even if it comes from somewhere else maybe to be valued and companies i think have a responsibility to make sure that they treat people fairly and equally value people for equal work um, and that's kind of part of the the writing that i do one of the things i think every company should do is you know i talk a lot about data i think data is really important but you should track all of your employees um, when they started, what level they started at, when they received their yeah. promotions, 
how long, you know, so then you can see things like how long between promotions, and then you can start to control for gender and race and say, are, like, does our data show that we are actively discriminating? So if there's, if, if for women... Or, and not even, even, I'm just thinking worst case scenario, oh, what if we just totally missed this person? Right, like, yeah. You know. What if we missed this person and forgot about it? What if women on average are promoted in nine months and men on average are promoted in six months? Yeah, that would be... Uh, but that would be surprising to everybody. Right. Um, but you can't know this without data. And so every company uh-huh. should start tracking these things. So that's kind of because because, again, as an individual woman at a company, it's hard to go and say, like, I think you're being biased and discriminatory because you don't have the data. Um, and even if you have a feeling that that might be the, the case, like it's just a really difficult position to be in. And so I think it's actually the responsibility of the company to do that. That was something that's really interesting to me was that. Uh, you know, as Heroku has been assimilated by Salesforce because they got purchased by Salesforce uh, over five years ago, mm-hmm. you know, we've been, we've kind of gone from being more Heroku to being more Heroku plus Salesforce mm-hmm. and then more and more into just part of Salesforce. Mm-hmm. And that transition has been very fascinating to watch because we went from, I think I was an employee, I was in the first like 60 employees or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we're over like 200 plus and uh, that's a major culture difference. And especially with the company mm-hmm. stuff, like there were Salesforce policies that just didn't apply to us. Like none of them. I, I mean, there was an email that went out when I started. And it was like, here's the filter you put into Gmail to block all emails from Salesforce because you can ignore them all. Yeah. And then o- over time, that's no longer the case at all. But there, And because it's been such a long amount of time and there's so many people that are coming in and out, mm-hmm. there's been no explicit you should listen to these now. It's just kind of implicit little changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I got a five-year celebratory surfboard from Salesforce for working for five years. I'm like, oh, I wish I kind of miss the days when like Heroku would have sent me something. Yeah. You know, but Heroku doesn't really exist anymore. It's as a as an individual company. It's it's a part of Salesforce. Mm-hmm. So that's Salesforce's job to do that stuff. Yeah. And I and I thought that that was just really fascinating to just be with that feeling. Yeah. It's like. That little company is gone, mm-hmm. uh, but the product remains, and the product is better than it's ever been. So yeah, it's just interesting. Assimilation culture is mm-hmm. really—I've only—I've never experienced it before. So uh, yeah, I thought of, I just thought I just thought it was really cool. And I love Mark Benioff. Just... He went through and and like he I think he looked at all of the data throughout Salesforce and was like, "We're going to eliminate the the gender wage gap for everyone at the same level." Um, in the company, yeah. which can't eliminate what I call the promotion gap, which is basically the phenomenon where if 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 men are promoted in six months on average and women are promoted in nine months on average, you're going to get a promotion gap um, yeah. where that will add up over time. And so, but I, I love Mark Benioff. I think that I think that what he did was really neat. He's very socially involved. Yeah, uh, it, it's cool. Like when the North Carolina stuff happened this year, he. Mm-hmm. I think he said, like, no one's allowed to travel to North Carolina or something. I don't remember. I don't know if that's still in effect. I love that he takes action. I think that that's really um, kind of unique, actually, in the tech industry where we spend a lot of time talking about things. And uh, there's. Yeah, he does a lot of philanthropy, too. He owns the. Or he started the children's hospital there in San Francisco. His name is on it. That's all I know. I think it's it's the Benioff. The the Benioff Children's Hospital. Yeah. Um, I don't know if he started. I'm sure. I'm sure it involves quite a bit of money. That's all I know. A lot of money. Um, there's a there's a program. It's called Raphael House in San Francisco that I volunteered with for like the last four years. 
It's a shelter oh, cool. for families. It keeps the whole family unit together, the parents and the children. And um, Mark Benioff donated. That's a great name for that organization. Raphael House? Yeah, yeah, like the Archangel Raphael? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, yeah, I think it was originally a Catholic organization, but now it's completely independent, completely privately funded. And he donated a million dollars so that they could open up their third floor. And I think now they have like 60 families at a time. And uh, wow. I loved that. I was because almost no one knows about this very local charity in San Francisco. And I was like, wait, Mark huh. Benioff donated? Like the tech, most of the tech industry <laughs> has no idea that this this charity exists in the city. Um, and he donated a million dollars. And I was like, okay, I like him. I like that's Mark awesome. Benioff. Yeah, he seems to be pretty great. Yeah. I I don't think I'll ever meet him just based on his pay level, but who knows? Maybe. Maybe one day. Yeah, I looked. It's public information, like the stock transfers and stuff of CEOs. And if if you look, it's just astonishing the amount of money that someone who runs a company that size can make. <laughs> yeah, it seems unfathomable. And it's it's really it's it is like you literally can't imagine. I don't think what what that would be like, because then your life is like an infrastructure, and you're like, how can I change the world around me? And it seems like he's especially in, he's very local focused with san francisco but also globally yeah but uh it's really cool to see like you know when you have that much disposable income mm-hmm. uh you know you almost like it's it's really cool to to imagine being able to do that yeah. you know i think that would be really fun I, to be able to do that honestly as a broke entrepreneur i think that um having being able to save money sounds really appealing <laughs> that's that's something that uh i'm starting for the first time in in the last year i used to spend every dollar i made uh on gadgets and stuff and then on uh a love interest of mine supporting her and her dreams uh in an excessive manner Mm. uh she she ended she was uh wonderful but she um she she played me. <laughs> so unintentionally. If you're looking for uh, a really great savings and investment tool, um, Betterment is amazing. I just just don't buy stuff anymore, and I just kind of let it grow. I don't really pay attention or graph it out or anything. Uh, I just spend less than I earn. I live below my means now mm-hmm. because I've I've done enough purchasing in the past where I have gadgets and you know I still buy. I still am okay with buying. I bought myself a fancy Apple Watch. I got the Hermes edition, you know, for my birthday. Nice. And I'm like, I haven't, I haven't bought any toys all year. I, I can buy this one thing, you know. Yeah. And it, it wasn't that expensive at all. Um, but, you know, you'd expect it to be like five thousand dollars. It was like one. It was like an extra three hundred dollars or something. Yeah. Uh, and it has a lot of meaning and value to me. So, I used to be like that every, every two weeks though. I would like find something like that and buy it for myself. Mm-hmm. Um. Or two or three things. Yeah. And and so now I just don't do that anymore. And and it's just really comforting to have that growth because for me what happened was when I, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder when I had this psychotic episode I wrote about on my blog because um, I wasn't sleeping and stuff like that because when you're manic, it's just this natural phase I go through when I... And that's how I got real productive and used to write requests and, you know, like pump out mm-hmm. like a, a fuck ton of open source code. Uh, was when I had these hypomanic episodes, and that's a it's a gift, not a curse. But then it, as you age, it progresses and it gets worse. Mm-hmm. And uh, so one day that in, for me turned into I'm not gonna sleep. Instead of not sleeping for one night, you know, let's say for a couple weeks, 
Um, it was, I'm not going to sleep for five days, you know, and I didn't, wasn't tired. And then mm -hmm. I, I ended up in the hospital and just having that happen to me totally changed my mentality about money and like wa <laughs> wanting some kind of security because like I, that I was totally normal and healthy as far as I was concerned before that. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then one day just boom, like if I wasn't out of, you know, I could see myself like anything could be taken away from me at any time. Mm -hmm. So like my job, for some reason, the legal system could get involved somehow in my life. And like, I, I could be unemployed if they if they like took me away from my life for six months or something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, and if that was to happen, you know, how is how will my wife live here? You know, so like, I just started having that more of that mentality. Mm -hmm. And it's more of a, it's almost out of it's not it started off as a fear based thing. But now it's more of a responsibility where it's like, you know, it's really nice to be like, I know that if some, for some reason, let's just say sales, Heroku just disappeared tomorrow, I could like, I wouldn't starve for, a, you know, I just wouldn't starve mm -hmm. for, for a little while, you know? And that's, I feel like I owe that to myself. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's more rewarding to that than to uh, be constantly buying things. Yeah. Which is something I think a lot of developers deal with. And when you live in a big city like San Francisco, I know it's hard to have savings at all because of how expensive things are. Yeah. Yeah. I live in a very low-income area, so luckily I can afford to um, accrue funds. But, um, yeah. But, the, I mean, it's not much. You know, I'm not talking, like a, like, a ton of money, but compared to zero, it is a ton of money. Yeah. And it and it it impacts the way I make decisions too, yeah. because it's like I can make more investment oriented decisions. Like, okay, I'm going to spend a thousand dollars this month on improving my apartment mm -hmm. or something, and that's like okay, because that money that I have set aside is for is for like improving the quality of my life, not for spending. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a different it's a different mentality for me, and it's new and it, I've never really talked about it so yeah it's fun I'm just sharing randomly yeah well so my sister works at uh, NerdWallet it's a personal finance company and uh, it's been fantastic because she recommends all of these personal finance things to to me but Betterment was one of the ones she recommended so I moved all of my IRAs over there and um, I also have like I IRAs yes IRAs IRAs yeah uh -huh. uh, and then you can also set up like um, kind of investment accounts where you can put your money so that you can easily pull it out if you need to. So kind of like your backup savings or you can have long-term savings oh. and things like that. And so it's great. Yeah, I haven't looked into investment yet. I, I did experiment with Acorn for a little bit. Have you seen that app before? Um, I don't think so. It's it, it's an iPhone app and it's an investment tool where you're just like, I want to put $5 a day or something like that mm -hmm. into the into the account. And it's, it's like a, you can pick the level of risk that you want, mm -hmm. but it's kind of... The idea is it's kind of like really, really simplified index fund stuff. Yeah. Um, I stopped using it because their web service had some issues where it would with availability mm. uh, and responsivity. Yeah. Um, but I would be willing to take like let's say twenty five percent of that money and put it into a really low risk index something so it's mm -hmm. at least at least a feeding. Um, Intra uh, what's it called? Not what's the op when the currency deflate inflation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the idea. Um, and I, like, yeah. So I highly recommend Betterment. I'm trying to think. 
I use Mint for budgeting, things like that, so that you actually know. Does, does Betterment let you actually do the investment through them? Yeah, so you just transfer money from your bank account to them, and you can pick the risk level. There's also Vanguard, okay. which I think uh, might have. A... That's that's the popular one. Yeah, I really like. I've used Better or I've used Vanguard before. I really like Betterment because. Um, Is Betterment powered by Vanguard and other things like that, or are they they own their own thing? They're their own thing. Um, they have investment oh. algorithms for you, which is nice because, quite honestly, I don't really want to manage most of my own investments. So you can pick a risk level. Um, they have really easy to read projections for kind of like how much money you need to put in per month to get to a certain point. Um, oh, cool! But it's just—it's really nice it, and easy. And is there—is is it easy to like? bail ship if you like have an emergency yes yeah so you can specify like oh i want an account that is easy to liquidate yeah okay yeah yeah things like that that, that's the thing that i could i could imagine where like let's say my i my car i don't know i need to buy a new car and i wanted to buy it in cash instead of getting a loan Mm -hmm. uh that would be an emergency for me Mm -hmm. Uh, so I would need to get that immediately, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. You should be able to do it in a few days kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely going to check that out. That sounds like a, a wise decision that, because whenever it comes to like investments and stuff like that, I always, you know, whenever I get any, like I used to get RSUs and and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. you know, like, and I would just, I just cash them as soon as I get them because I just don't want any, um, vitality at all in my money i just want to like have it Hmm. and have it be have it be a number that i'm aware of Mm. and uh those seem like really safe ways to because it doesn't when you have like a a low risk index fund it doesn't like go down really it's it's all just about like yeah they're they're like safe they're like you know it's just what people do when they want to have like a smarter savings account basically yeah yeah basically and i mean if they go down they go down with the market so that's that can be something that's but but that's the risk too i i know a lot of older people who you know 5 years ago were like i'm not doing too good because of the market because mm-hmm. they put all their retirement into or whatever it was into into those funds and so i just stay away from all of that stuff and i'm terrified of it so i'm afraid to to even dabble yeah it's it's interesting. It's it's, it's funny because like as an engineer, you think maybe that's something that I should approach, like because it's kind of like a core infrastructure of your life. Yeah, I would start small, you know, but it's definitely worth it. I mean, it's also like having automatic deductions for your four hundred one k, things like that. Yeah, yeah, I have that set up, yeah. but I I kind of ignore it. I don't even know what it, what it is. Yeah, it just kind of accrues invisibly then, which is good throughout like your twenties and your thirties. That should just be be happening. Yeah, and then you want to match. You want to optimize for the company matching, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If that's the key, is just making sure if they're going to give you extra money, take it. Yes. <laughs> yes. That that's the thing that I don't do now. They, we have an ESPP program mm-hmm. at Salesforce, uh, where I can buy stock at a discounted price, and then it's like guaranteed to be profitable, basically. Hmm. Uh, and I don't know, just the. I, like doing my taxes is already really difficult for having stock at all. So, mm. um, from get from those little RSUs. So yeah. I just for me I, I optimize for tax simplicity. <laughs> I would if you're gonna I would do those cool things and then pay someone to do your taxes. To be totally honest, that's one of the things that is like a totally justifiable expense. People who do your taxes save you more money than you spend on them usually. Yeah, I've always wanted to do that, but. Uh, 
I never have. I always just do TurboTax, and mm-hmm. it's real stressful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I should do that now, because I have... I didn't do my taxes a couple years ago, and because I owed a bunch of money, and I, I have the money set aside. Um, I should... And it's so stressful to go download the app and print the stuff and enter all the numbers. I should just go to a, a, an accountant. Yeah, just have them do it all for you. Just pay them. That's such a good idea. Thank you, Kate. I appreciate that. Peace of mind. You just, you, you just, you just relieved a lot of stress for me. <laughs> There's a few things that I pay for, and one of them is definitely people to do people to do taxes. I also f- Yeah, that's the thing I don't like about living in Winchester is that Compared to San Francisco, you know, Winchester, Virginia is this town of like 30,000 people. And uh, I love it here. But you can pay for anything when you live in San Francisco. It's, it's with apps and stuff. Mm, you know, true. there's so many services available. Mm-hmm. Uh, I kind of miss that. But I'm realizing you can pay for more things than I realize. I'm kind of like getting into the more old school mentality. Uh-huh. So like I have a pair of shoes. I, I get expensive shoes because they last longer and they're nice and they feel they feel good. And um, usually when they wear out, I buy another pair. And this time I was like, there's only one thing wrong with them. I can tell that they're going to get worse over time. The lacing was coming undone. Not the lacing, the um, stitching Mm -hmm. in the front. And so I went to a shoe repair shop and Mm -hmm. he fixed it for me. And he fixed a zipper on a bag for me as well that broke off for like 50 50 bucks. And I was like, I just say myself... I don't know. I that I for some reason I just have such a consumer mentality by default being a millennial mm-hmm. that that getting something repaired is like kind of beyond me unless it's like an appliance or something like that. You should totally get things repaired. Jeans, you can get jeans repaired. Um Really? Yeah. One of the things, so I traveled for a year and worked remotely and we went to Vietnam for a while and they do a lot of tailoring in Vietnam. And basically what I learned mm. from that is that if you have an existing piece of clothing that has an issue, you can take it to a tailor and they will fix it. Like, if you love that clothing and, like, you want to keep it, you should totally do it. And you should buy nicer clothing and you should fix it. That's apparently very German as well. Like, they always get their jeans patched. They don't buy new jeans. Huh. So. I, yeah, that's exactly what I do. I just, like, I buy, like, three or four pairs of jeans a year. And then that's just kind of the flow, mm-hmm. you know, because eventually one goes out and I go out and buy two more because mm-hmm. it's, like, Buy one, get one 50% off at Kohl's. <laughs> <laughs> so they force you to spend $100 on jeans. Yeah. But they last They last a good two years, mm-hmm. probably. Uh, but maybe they'd last for five. Because they're such... They're so robust. It's ridiculous. And it's when you really look and think about it, there's infrastructure built into the clothing, mm-hmm. you know? For repairs and stuff like that. So yeah. I did that the other, the other day. I bought a jacket that... Uh, they said it was unisex. But I'm not quite sure. It flared out, flares out a little bit on the sides. Uh-huh. And I was like, I bet my mom could sew this for me so it doesn't do that. And so she did. And, you know, yeah. I bought it. I bought it even though it wasn't quite right. Yeah. And I, I, I just like that mentality. I'm kind of getting more into that. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm doing that because I'm traveling less now. I have more time to think about these things. Yeah, well, it's so easy to get clothing taken in. Um, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot and- of budget saving things. And I've also been um, uh, volunteering at the Habitat for Humanity Restore lately, uh, which is pretty cool. And they do, I've only done it once so far, but I'm, I'm do that on some Saturdays and they do, do you know about what these restore places? Mm -mm. So it's kind of like a goodwill, but it's only for um, like 
the objects that you use to build a home. Mm-hmm. So doors, uh, appliances, sinks, uh, light switches, oh, stuff like that. Cool. And then you can go in and buy this stuff really inexpensively. And all the profits go to building homes for people locally mm-hmm. and all over specifically locally they're 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 like they're like working on a housing development project somewhere and they build homes for people and i it's just such a cool i don't know i'm getting more connected with that stuff i love that which is nice i love home repair less less connected with open source and more with that but i'm trying to get more connected with open source too Mm -hmm. (laughs) because i've been a little disconnected from recreationally coding for the, about two years now, and that's why I started the Say Thanks project was because uh, I wanna I wanna start coding again for fun because mm-hmm. it is fun. It's just really easy to get out of the get out of that groove. Mm-hmm. Do you now? I don't know actually. Do you do do you code much? I do. I mean, I built the I built the original platform that is our company, and I um, I built my personal website, and I'm a software engineer. That's what I studied, and then I wanted to become one. So I, I've spent a lot of time programming. I haven't done a lot of open source work. Um, mm-hmm. I just never really got into a community around a specific project, to be honest. Yeah, neither have I. That's why I just started my own. <laughs> That's I, I, I'm not much of a contributor. I contribute socially to a, a lot of projects mm-hmm. where I like say the right things to the right people, or like suggest things that need to that should be changed mm-hmm. or improvements. Um, like some major, even some major Python changes were because of me, but I am not, my name isn't seen anywhere. Mm-hmm. It was the, uh, it was the Unicode. Um, I was writing tests and, uh, the Unicode strings in Python two, you put a U in front of them mm-hmm. and that's a syntax error in Python three. So I got real upset and I tweeted about like, this is like broken. Mm-hmm. It, if we have a, it be the bytes one works on both, not, but not the U, mm-hmm. um, and then Armin Ronaker went through and he like he saw that tweet and he was like, he's right. And so he went through and he did all the work of uh, doing the pep and going through the debate. There was like 200 emails that went back and forth and it was finally accepted. And mm-hmm. That's the kind of work I like to do where it's like, I like, you know, I, I work behind the scenes. Yeah. Um, well, Armin is amazing. I, he's so nice. And I can't, <laughs> the amount of work that he does for open source projects is he, incredible. He was my biggest inspiration um, when I was, you know, starting off uh, and continues to be uh, a, a great inspiration. Like requests, I wanted it to be the flask of, you know, the opposite of serving requests, basically. <laughs> and so if you look at my theme that I use on, uh, for requests, which popularized the theme, and now it's default for all. Uh, BitProfit took it, the guy who re- maintains Fabric, uh-huh. who I want to have on the, on the show soon. He, he took my theme because um, Armin had his theme and he said, you can't use you can't use this unless you change something. So I made it responsive. Um, and then that was the main thing I did was make it responsive. So it worked on phones because that was really important to me. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, and so then that BitProfit took that and he productionized it into an open source package. Mm-hmm. And now it's called Alabaster and it is on uh it's the default sphinx theme mm-hmm. now so like armin started it and then i popularized it and then now it's now all the python documentation everywhere by default is beautiful mm-hmm. and instead of ugly and so that's i don't know that's to me that's tremendous impact and it's 
I'm not taking credit because Armin is actually probably more responsible for that than I am. Mm-hmm. But I am taking credit for it because it wouldn't have happened if I didn't do that. You know? Yeah, it takes. I mean, there's it takes a village for a lot of things to get done. You know, one person really. We love to talk about the hero's journey and to talk about these narratives of like individuals doing things, but it's incredibly rare that anyone does anything completely on their own. Oh yeah, for sure. Like getting, just getting one person to tweet about a project is really key mm-hmm. to, to getting people interested in it. So yeah. I, I find a responsibility to like, I love finding a, a like a kind of a neat repo with like two stars or zero stars mm-hmm. and tweeting about it. Yeah. And then like, it goes, it goes up to like 50 the next day. And I'm like, yes, yeah, I helped fun. somebody. <laughs> well, and that's how I feel about deployments, right? Like, you know, there's this narrative that people program alone, but software is not built alone. It's built by teams of people and teams of people are the ones who mm-hmm. think about getting their code out. And that, you know, we've got larger engineering teams than we ever have before because we have the tooling that allows us to have larger engineering teams than we've ever had before. Um, and yeah, and more distributed. More distributed. All they, they can look, I think it's fascinating. Yeah. I love it. I love people systems and I love web systems. So it's Do you love systems in general? Systems. It was my favorite, one of my favorite classes in college, systems programming. I feel like I missed out on that stuff by not... I went to school for a year and I dropped out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't feel like I missed out on anything, but occasionally when I hear about classes like that, I, I think that that sounds really cool to study. Like, I would love to take a class. No, I don't like taking classes. I hate classes. I would love to learn about in a in a non, you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a, an autodidact is the official term. Uh-huh. I'm, I, I self-teach uh-huh. everything, everything that I do is just how I learn best. Um, you know, but that's through other people and stuff. Um, I'm really interested in electrical signals, uh, specifically analog uh, modulation techniques, because uh-huh. I, I love analog synthesizers. And that's kind of the basis of how computers work mm-hmm. is, is modulating signals. Uh, and it's and then you get digital, which is basically doing that with math on top of it. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, you know you have pulse width modulation, and you have uh, there's there's like this big there's just a Wikipedia page that has every style of modulation, mm-hmm. and I love that stuff. And I I would have I I kind of wish I had taken a class on that, uh-huh. but I feel like I, I wouldn't have absorbed the information properly unless I guys come across it myself. Yeah, you know. Well, and I, I think like if it's being forced upon me, I don't care. But I like I'm really interested in history. Like the other day, I realized I didn't know, I like I know a lot about like Egypt and the stuff that was going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you see the pyramids, and they're like amazing. And the Sphinx appears to be older than Egypt. What than Egypt is? Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's really cool information. And 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 like. Who conquered? Why are they no longer there? What happened? I actually went through all of like high school, and I somehow, I don't know if I was never taught that or I forgot it, but mm-hmm. I didn't know that the Romans conquered Egypt. I had no idea. Mm. You know, Cleopatra. The, I still don't know. I don't know that story. Oh. Like I just know her. Her. I just know her name. Um, you know, Cleopatra and Mark Antony. It, I mean, it's a famous movie. Yeah, of course it is. With the, with the carpet, someone's rolled up in a carpet or something. I don't remember actually, but I, uh, I do remember reading recently or like a couple years ago that they couldn't figure out how they got those massive stone blocks out to the pyramids. And it turns out that the answer was, was hiding in plain sight. They thought really? it was a metaphor, but the hieroglyph 
hieroglyphics showed people putting oh. water on the sand and they, they like yeah i read about this yeah, because the water would have packed the sand down and reduced the friction coefficient i thought that was really interesting. and then and if you pour it right away then you can glide it over mm-hmm. yeah yeah so anyways that's, i thought that was neat that's it well that's still a problem that's still a theory of course oh, yeah. but uh that's probably the most valid one that's out there <laughs> yeah that and probably also just a lot of people pulling well, yeah, the more impressive part is the cutting, though, of the stones, uh, because they're so precise. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, not not only there, I think it's the Machu Picchu uh, Aztecs, mm-hmm. their stone cutting is laser laser precision, and we have uh, no idea how they did that uh, back then. Mm. Be- because they, cause they're really, they just take rocks and they would make them fit perfectly next to each other, mm-hmm. and... Uh, and it, and they're like I'm talking like you know not micrometer precision but like you know milli, within milli, sub millimeter precision mm-hmm. uh, of like extremely hard rock and uh, and they're then they weigh like uh, you know over fifty tons each you know yeah. and it's so cool I love I love that stuff and I and I'm not I think that it's quite possible so if you think about it. I'm not into like conspiracy theories or anything like that, but if our society was to somehow be like conquered or something, Mm -hmm. there's not much written record of us. Uh, If you like do any genealogy at all, you'll, you'll kind of get a feel for how like written records go. You know, it's all, it's all on paper. Like all of our stuff, like all of our stuff's on the internet right now, right? Most of it digital. And then all the paper stuff fades after like 50 years if it's not protected. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I I like the idea that it's possible that someone like the Aztecs or some older society have technology that we different forms of technology that we don't have now that enabled them to do that. Like maybe they knew about electricity and were able to harness it somehow. You know, like it would be very possible that we don't that they wouldn't have left a record because of the way it works. You know. Mm-hmm. Like if like Tesla was working on the wireless energy stuff, there wouldn't if if let's just say that that's a possibility and that could work and we could have wireless energy everywhere. Well, if someone else figured that out and then they got conquered and destroyed and there wouldn't be wires everywhere and we wouldn't, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, it's I'm not saying that that's probable or that at all, but I love thinking about that stuff and I think that it's kind of silly that we as in general kind of assume that people of the past were naive, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, cause people are really smart yeah. and they probably figured it's not, you know, like the, like the Brent Franklin story with, with the key and the electricity that could not have taken if the pyramids and shit are built, mm-hmm. it did not take 2000 years for someone to figure out what that stuff is. I think. Well, they saw or, or, or 20,000 years. I'm sure someone yeah. dabbled with it at some point, you know, <laughs> there were a lot of ideas that existed long before they were implemented at scale too. like, you know, yeah, like all the stuff that um, uh, Leonardo da Vinci yeah. was doing, which I think is actually a perfect testament to the fact that um, execution is the hardest part of anything. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And that's definitely true in software engineering, mm-hmm. and and you need uh, that's why you focus on the people, right? Yeah, well, people don't change as fast as technology does. In fact, people very rarely change. So. Hmm. So, do you have any other topics that you want to talk about, or any questions for me? I I feel like I've been kind of guiding things along. Do you want to Do you want to take a turn? Um. 
Oh, yeah, no, it's been a good conversation. I feel like we've talked about a lot of different things. I, I feel like we could conclude or we could go a little bit more. I'm fine either way. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't know. We covered a lot of the topics that I like to talk about. Yeah. I don't know. They only, you have a lot of like um, music pieces behind you, like different keyboards. I do. And I'd be interested in knowing more about those. So uh, I really love analog synthesizers, and I love synthesizers in general. I make music. Uh, mm-hmm. This is the the Moog Sub Thirty Seven right here, mm-hmm. and uh, this is a really cool. So I specifically like monophonic synthesizers. So they only make one note at a time, mm-hmm. and they use a, a method uh, called subtractive synthesis. Mm-hmm. So you you start with a waveform like a square wave, and uh, and then you subtract from it with a filter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have a very the Moog Moog is very famous because they have a very beautiful sounding ladder filter it's called mm-hmm. uh, and it's twenty so the way you represent sound tra- tra- travels through electricity analogly the way we do it mm-hmm. um, in a very fascinating way it is literally just if if you do the digital we'll do the digital representation when you look at a sound file like the things we're recording right now it is literally just measuring voltages. Uh, at forty four thousand times a second, mm-hmm. and that and it's uh, that's all it's doing. It's just there's a little thing, you know. There's a base mm-hmm. line where where it's zero, and you can go plus or minus mm-hmm. uh, a given voltage, and then you just sample it forty four thousand times a second, and then you have a bit depth, which is how much resolution do you want? Mm-hmm. Do you want sixteen bit or twenty four bit? Mm-hmm. Or and that's all analog sound is, and you just plug that into a speaker. And it works, and that's that's how that's how speakers work. That's how it turns and digital I, into analog sound. Is that what you mean? Well, it's, no, it's analog the whole time. Huh. Yeah. So you, you plug that in, and then the speaker will respond to uh, to that voltage, and it will make reproduce sound, and it's just doing little pulses, hmm. so of intensity, which make pressure waves, and then that recreates the uh, the pressure waves that go to your ears. Mm-hmm. At different, at different, uh, it modulates the air around you. Yeah. So I really, so I really love just those concepts because they're very real to me, mm-hmm. uh, um, as opposed to like uh, digital stuff. Because I grew up playing, like my first computing experiences were like my dad had like a DOS and Windows three point one machine. I used Paint on, mm-hmm. and I used like a Nintendo NES and the SNES. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I've been all digital my whole life. And so to go from that to this thing has a function generator. It's basically a giant function generator. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a bunch of components in it that are all lined up in an analog path. Everything in there is analog. And the cool part about it is that, you know, the, the core of it is called a VCO, which is a voltage-controlled oscillator. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> And it just, like, it'll, they'll have different ones that do different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually it'll do, like, a square wave and a triangle wave and a couple others. And it'll, and you control it with voltage. You, you send voltage to it, and it's one volt per octave. Mm-hmm. So if you send one volt, it'll go up one octave. If you send half a volt, it'll go up half an octave. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's how you control the pitch. Oh, and, cool. But, but the bass that base one that it's running at is analog. So it's de- it's uh, dependent on temperature in the room. So if the sun comes into my room uh-huh. uh, and shines on my synthesizer, it'll start getting a little sharp 
and I have to tune it to make it go back to to adjust it. Oh. And like, so that's what I love is like just be it's really connected to the world around me and my environment. And so like I have a real radio over here too, mm -hmm. and and I can listen to music on it, and that's just really fascinating to me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's really that neat. like, yeah, I and I I think that you know because it is digital concepts being transmitted over analog technologies and that's how cell phones work and that's how everything works wi-fi mm -hmm. you just apply when you start doing all that all that modulation you can start doing math problems on top of it mm -hmm. and then you can do tcp ip you know you send and receive packets back and forth and ensure that they're delivered and mm -hmm. it's all it's all you know the turtles go way way down when you get beyond the computer so what you're saying and, is that uh, under all of our computers it's just music Yes, it, we're all just making music all everywhere we go. Making music. In our own little symphonies. <laughs> it's it's really beautiful and I it's really fun. Uh, and of course I love making music. I was a drummer. I almost my when I was educating myself, uh, I I was high I graduated high school and it was time to pick a career, you know, to go to school. And I was really torn between being a drummer full time, because that was my main passion. Mm -hmm. Uh, or being a, I wanted, I was interested in social work, um, or being a programmer or a photographer. And, uh, I ended up picking software engineering because I could do all the other stuff if I was paid well on the side, mm -hmm. basically. Um, and that was a really good decision. I think <laughs> that's what my parents told yeah. me. <laughs> they, to, that, to do software engineering. Well, my, my dad's a doctor, but he plays guitar. And so that's why I, I play guitar. Um, and, oh, do you? Yeah. yeah. Do you do acoustic or electric or what? I play acoustic. I play some piano. I sing. So I, I do all that stuff. But my, my parents were always like, see, the thing about passions is that either you've got to be so good at them that you can make enough money to live or you can make enough money to live and then still do your passions on the side. Yeah. And ideally, the software development is a passion too. So Yeah. It's a, it's a mix of everything. It's really fun. It's... Um, it's like, but but being a musician is not a wise decision and financially it's not, ever. It's also like not a lot of fun. I think. Like you, you think it's hard to make it in the in the startup world. When I say make it, I mean you know get the company flipping thing going. Then being a musician is a whole other ballgame. Yeah, it seems harder to be a musician than to be a startup founder. I, I think it is. Even if just to sustain yourself, but let alone be extremely profitable you got to really it's all in who you know and luck and the the climate of the music industry changes mm -hmm. and you know it's it's crazy so i make music just like for therapy i guess i don't know i just yeah. enjoy doing it i'm not trying to make anything and same thing for photography i don't mm -hmm. i don't i know someone could buy a photo if they wanted but i prefer to just they just do it for me yeah. you know yeah. And that's why you play the guitar because mm -hmm. you—it's just fun. It's for me, yeah. And I can't think about anything else when I when I do music, and so it's a truly relaxing pastime. Have you ever thought about like uploading some YouTube videos of you doing that? I mean, I have a SoundCloud where I write technology song parodies. What? Are you serious? Yeah, SoundCloud.com/slash/huddle317. Music production though is not my forte. I will say that. Oh. Uh, let's see. Heddle 317? H-E-D-D-L-E 317. 
You know, I apologize because I guarantee you, you've told me this before and I forgot. Um, yeah, because I'm, fo- I'm following maybe. you. Maybe. I don't so. really talk about it that much, but. Code it gently. Mm-hmm. The neckbeard parody of Part of Your World. Yeah. It's about a mermaid cool. who wishes she had a neckbeard so that she could be a better programmer. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. It does contain the line, bright young women, not just admins, pseudo-SU. So, kind of proud of it. So, at the beginning of every show, I do a little intro. Would you like to, to do record a less than one minute thing of you playing the guitar uh, for the intro? Uh, maybe. Okay. So, if there was guitar at the beginning... Kate said yes, and if there was not, then it was me doodling on my synthesizers. <laughs> um, yeah, it just depends on whether I can get the recording, my recording equipment together. Uh, I just have like one of these little zooms that I for that would be ideal for recording stuff like that. Anyway, Sorry, what was that? I think we should end the pot. Oh, it's a Zoom H two N. Huh. Okay, you'll have to send me the link to that afterwards. And this has six condenser mics in it. Uh-huh. Um, and it's like the best audio quality you can imagine. And it's great for, you know, you just set it in front of yourself. Uh-huh. And you would, yeah. And it would be like album album quality if you have a nice acoustic instrument. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, I feel like that's a good place to wrap up the show. Yeah. Everyone got to hear a good, uh, good thing. Um, I usually like to ask a cool question at the end. Uh, like it's way out there and I don't have one prepared. So let me just come up with one real quick. Mm-hmm. What would if okay? So if, if someone what if you could give one piece of advice, it's like one sentence long, to um, a woman that is wants to be a developer, uh-huh. and they're, and they're like just getting started. Yeah, because I have I have a friend who's 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 male who is uh, just getting started, and I've been thinking a lot about how hard that is without other people's help. Mm-hmm. Um, at least because I, I needed other people's help to like, you know, networking is a huge part of it. Um, do you have any advice for specifically to women in that department if you're getting started in code and want to have a career and you're like, you know, trying to get your first junior development job? Um, I mean, for people learning to code, my advice is, is pretty general and it's just find something that you care about that you can build where, where you can, like just where you really care about making progress towards it. That's why I love my personal website because, you know, inside yep. all of us are a little bit narcissistic. And so I, I cared <laughs> about building a website that I thought represented me well. And then for Yeah, there, that was actually a massive part of my motivation too, was <laughs> working on my website every day. Yeah, just a little bit. And then, and then um, do things in small pieces. Like, and if you get discouraged, make it smaller until you're not discouraged anymore and that's kind of the Mm. advice that i give people and then the the final piece is just like just just keep going like just keep trying every day um and that that's it i mean computers reward the tenacious that's that's pretty much it (laughs) so you think the general advice uh is sufficient for someone who would face more adversity as well yeah because i actually think that until you want to start fighting that adversity staying really focused and kind of carving out a space for yourself that is safe um, and where you really care about the thing you're working on is probably the most important. Yeah. You know, yeah. focusing on, on the fact that the world isn't, isn't fair is actually not going to help you individually get to the next step 
even though it is and even though you're right. Like there's a certain, I mean, I think um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said this where she was like, there is value in being able to ignore the things that people say essentially for, for a time. Oh, yeah. So I, for people getting started, my advice would actually be to ignore a lot of the bullshit and just focus on something that you <laughs> care about building and something that you care about doing or accomplishing that is big enough that you're willing to take small chunks of it and work on it every day. Yeah, for me, when I was getting started, it was I was not socially involved until I was very established in myself. Uh, you know, I had like my own identity that I had built and my own brand, if you will, mm-hmm. and it had nothing to do with open source Python. I people knew I loved Python and stuff like that, but I didn't. Um, you know, my identity wasn't with that. My identity was with it wasn't with a culture. It was with the culture of myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that's probably pretty key when you're getting started is to not get caught up in the too too caught up in the you know there's there's definitely benefits to the community um but you know maybe when you're like really green uh focusing on your own strengths versus everyone else's weaknesses is better yeah yeah and i mean like the final piece of advice i I do say is like it's go to is actually go to community events and find people to help you so find people that you can ask questions of so get an irc channels um and find people who essentially can help you technically so that when you get blocked you have someone there who can help unblock you (laughs) and then my advice to people um if they want to do something is if you meet junior developers at conferences tell them where you are online and say hey if you ever have any technical questions feel free to reach out like like offer yourself as a resource to people um to help them get unblocked technically I think that's one of the the top things people can do for their own community. If you want more diverse people to be a part of it, then go and tell them that you're happy to answer their technical questions anytime and give them your information. Um, Because those people were really, really important to me in my early days. And they they even still are. I just have a much larger community of people that I can message now and be like, hey, I had this issue with this thing that's really technical and I know that you're an expert in it. Like, Yeah, exactly. And so like, I think that um, for new people, that's really important and that can be really hard. And that's one of the things that people in the community can do. Yeah, and I, I heavily encourage all of our listeners, if they'd like to, join the uh, Freenode IRC channel, Positive Python. Uh, it's hashtag, you know, hash, uh, sorry, what is it? Uh, Octothorpe uh, Positive Python. And it's a group I created that is a, a, pi- a Python chat room that is positive only. No, no complaining and whining about the state of the world or technology. It's all positive vibes. And it's a really great place to talk and uh we have we have like seventy some people in there, so it's pretty cool. So you should join it, Kate, if you're on IRC. I am. I will. I will add that. Positive Python. Awesome. Positive Python. Positive Python. Yeah, and it was referencing Guido's keynote as well. It was a it was trending on Twitter last year. Everyone was spreading positive Python messages back and forth. That was all part of the same project. Mm-hmm. It was me and uh, Eric Holscher did that together. Yeah, that's fun. I like that. Because we were there was the Django social room where everyone hung out for a while and uh, and you know it, it became a place where a lot of people would just come and like if they're having a technical problem they just complain about mm-hmm. it so we uh, we avoid that situation in this room and you know it's IRC is great for complaining and doing that stuff yeah. but it's nice to have a, a place where it's like I can ignore you know I don't have to ignore anything it's just all nice and pleasant that's what I like yeah yeah that's nice I like that there sometimes the complaining can be can be a little cool. bit hard 
about technical things where you're like, you know what? Not everything's perfect. It just is the way it is. <laughs> you can either and fix I, I, it in the open source project or you can work around it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Those are your options. Uh, all right. So in closing, uh, thank you very much, Kate, for joining us. Uh, hopefully Alex will return soon. And I'd also like to invite anyone who wants to work on a very simple service uh, or just, you know, start on GitHub, uh, you can check out uh, saythanks.io. Uh, it is, again, in very early development stages, but I think the more people involved, the more uh, likely it will come to fruition. So, yeah. Uh, thanks again, yeah, Kate. Thanks and uh, I guess we'll, s we'll see everybody soon. Bye. Bye.